Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hi, Ann Friedman. Hi, Boo. How's it going? Oh my god, it's so hot in New York City. You're in New York. I have to pretend I, I don't York. know that for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I feel like I'm pretending I don't know that it's so hot. I forgot how hot it was on the East Coast. I mean, I'm sorry to hear that, but also you knew what you were getting into. Yeah, you know, that's a thing. It's like it's disgusting, but I'm so happy. <laughs> uh, are you ready to have a heavy convo? Um, when is it not a heavy combo on this podcast? Oh my God, so many times. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I'm so ready. You know, we've been, we've been talking about this episode for a long time and, uh, for like different reasons, like scheduling slash self-care have not addressed a lot of the recent gun violence that's happened in the country. And so I'm really glad that we took some time out and, uh, this is what we're going to be doing today. When we first talked about doing an episode devoted to guns, it was just a couple days after the shooting in Orlando at Pulse. Then we knew we wanted to have a bigger conversation about violence that wasn't just anti-gay violence and wasn't just mass shootings, but like the totality of the gun violence that we read about every week. And in the week since that happened, obviously there has been just a relentless amount of horrific news about guns and the people who use them. Yeah, you know, it's it's so depressing, like, thinking back to those couple of weeks ago when we were like, oh, we should probably do this, like, in a timely, like, <laughs> fast, you know, like, the media savvy part is like, let's do this soon. And I remember one of us saying, well, like, actually, there's probably going to be another high profile shooting by the time that we do this. And uh, it feels like the whole country has, like, lost its mind right now. So... It is really depressing to me that it is always a timely, evergreen topic to talk about gun violence and is becoming more urgent. And I think that a lot of people are taking it really personally. I know for you and for me and for Gina, part of our conversation about this is like, we are not gun people, <laughs> like do not own them, like haven't really spent a ton of time around them, which is not to say that like you know, that means you're unaffected by gun violence. But I think it is to say that I definitely feel like I don't understand the perspective of people who want to own guns and actively campaign for them to remain legal and on the market. Oh, 100% right. I think that this is a really good place to like put all of our biases out. Like, I think that maybe of the three of us, I am the most extreme like anti-gun person. I will not date somebody who owns a gun. I will not spend the night in the house of somebody who has a gun. I will not let like children in my family play with other kids who have guns in their homes. And it's something that I'm like very cognizant of. And that's probably from like Texas living where it's a thing that you're confronted with like weirdly more than you should be. Here's a question though. Do you always know? Um, I ask. You do? Like before before you like sleep with someone or spend the night in their house, you ask if they oh, have guns? Le- yes, 100% because I learned this in college. <laughs> oh my God, Texas I, college. <laughs> no, totally, right? Where it's like you're like shacking up with someone and then next thing you know, they're like a gun owner. And I was like, I like had I known this at the onset of this relationship, I would not have been here. And it's not a s- space I feel safe in, especially as a black woman. And so now I just know to ask. And um all of my cousins who have kids too have made me really aware of the fact that like when before they plan they like schedule play dates for their kids they always ask if the other parents have guns and if the answer is yes their kids won't go there. Yeah, there is there's something about I mean it's interesting that I think part of your experience starts in Texas or being in a state where guns are or owning guns is pretty normalized. I mean, I a few weeks ago was on a reporting trip in Missouri and was out in like the middle of nowhere with with other people, not just like me alone and this with this dude I was interviewing, but he specifically asked me and the photographer I was with if we were carrying. Oh my God, <laughs> and and you know and, my and, mind. <laughs> and and you know and that's one of those things where 
I had not until that moment felt uneasy, but it was something about being asked, like, well, why didn't you think to arm yourself against me? He was literally the only person standing there. He was the only threat that possibly could have been posed to us that was just so menacing. And I, I do believe that he was curious about it, that he was not trying to threaten us, but it was horrifying. And it was like, oh, yeah, like you are in an environment where most people or many, many people are carrying. Yeah, and I, I honestly, like, I don't understand it. It's like, I know what people say. It's like for a sport, it's for recreation, it's for protection. It, like, I know it. I just, like, deep in my soul do not understand why you need, like, why you need a gun. Yeah, and one of the things that I told that guy is that, like, I understand that there is maybe a perception that if I were carrying a gun, I would be safer. Even if I were trained in carrying a gun, I have my doubts that I would be able to use it to defend, I'm air quoting, like, defend myself. Um, And, you know, whatever. Due to statistics and my general, like, uncoordination, (laughs) I have no doubt that it would be something that would put me in greater danger if I were. Well, yeah, right. Okay. So, so this is honestly like a great talking point because this is one of the things that a lot of gun owners and especially conservative people, but not exclusively conservative people, all say that like firearms are essentially the great equalizer between like men and women. And all of the statistics like blow that out of the water. It's like 100% a lie. (laughs) Right. And in fact, like, what is the stat about having a gun in the house? I'm going to find it. Having a gun in the house makes a woman less safe, not more safe. And it, Oh, it, yeah, no. Yeah. Here it is. It's like more than twice as many women are killed with a gun by their husbands or intimate acquaintances that are murdered by strangers using guns, knives, or any other means. Right. That's from the Rand Institute of Health. Yeah. And then, yeah, no, I, you know what I mean? It's just the kind of thing where, like, I just never bought into that. <laughs> me like owning a firearm is what's going to stop like you know random boogie monster or intimate acquaintance that you know that wants to kill you yeah if anything it puts you more in danger it's like the availability of a weapon like yeah i was gonna read that that stat used against you totally the stat is actually the study found that women with access to firearms women with access to firearms not just like women who live with men who own them women with access to firearms become homicide victims at significantly higher rates than men uh, yeah, and higher rates of gun availability in the U.S. correlate with higher rates of female homicide. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> so that's a thing. As, as we were saying, yeah, no, that's a thing that I have, like, deeply internalized. Well, also when we were planning this episode, we recognized that all of us are kind of on the same page about not being into guns. And so... We, I, we like sent out a call for listeners to get in touch with us if they were gun owners to talk about why. And I think that this personal safety question, their answers to that were were interesting. My name is Jesse Plavel. I live in a quite a small town in northwestern Montana. My name is Sarah Palmzano. My name is Alexis Lambert. I live in Florida. My name is Jess Harrelson. Uh, I currently live in Brooklyn, New York. But I grew up in Sheridan, Wyoming. And yeah, I grew up around guns. Guns is just part of the culture of Wyoming. I personally have three guns. But between like my, the guns that I grew up with, my dad and my brothers, oh gosh, probably like 60 or 70. My experience with guns is that um, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool liberal Never had any experience with them until I started dating my husband. I could never see myself using a gun to protect myself from an intruder or something. But having it there when I'm there alone late at night, you know, there's a little bit more security in that. Look at it from this way. I'm like a queer woman and imagine me living out. Like, say I moved back to Wyoming to like not a very populated area out on a ranch and I was living with my wife or my girlfriend. Maybe. I would probably want to have some guns, like, just for protection. And, like, if someone comes into my home with the intent to do me harm, I know that I have the resources to protect myself and my dog. Because if you trifle with my dog, I'm going to unshackle you from your mortal coil. Way to really be into your pet. Um, <laughs> I know. I'm like, you. we are not aligned <laughs> on so ex- many issues. <laughs> on so many things. <laughs> oh, my God. The, the pet-loving fan base is going to come after us so hard. Oh, my God. It's like the Venn diagram of, like, gun owners and pet owners, I bet you, is, like, a perfect circle. I think it's more just, like, we are outside what is, like, a, two very common circles. Like, that's weird. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, oh, my God. But, yeah, I mean, and I do think that there is something, I mean... 
both to the point about Texas or like me being in like rural Missouri, there is something about context to like the area you're in that changes potentially how you feel, feel, not like the stats, but like how you feel about whether a gun would be useful for protection. I think that there's something true about that. And the, the woman saying, you know, like if I moved back to rural Wyoming, I might want one then I think is kind of speaks to that. I don't know. It, it makes me really scared that a significant number of the population in this country thinks that they need guns for like any kind of reason and are so attached to them. They have their own personal attachment to their guns and they all tell you the same thing about how they want like common sense regulation, right? Like, like common sense is common in the first place. And then you have people like me who are just like deeply uncomfortable by it. And I don't know what the middle ground is. Yeah, I think that for me, where it starts to break down is listening to members of Congress really push hard to keep guns out of the hands of people on the no fly list, which like lots of problems happening there. And, you know, and even the idea that we can sort of on a broad level make people safe by saying if you're like a convicted felon or if you have a anything in your background that would that people use to kind of be specific about who is a dangerous person. We don't want to have guns. All of that stuff says to me, like, well, you know, I mean, I, I haven't done a systematic analysis of, like, I mean, whatever, it would be impossible, of all of the gun-related, like, homicide that happens in America. <laughs> but, like, I can't imagine that every single incident or even the majority of incidents are perpetrated by, quote, dangerous people. Like, people no, who we can't identify as dangerous kill people all the time. No, I feel that, like, even in the news in passing, like, at least once a week, you read about, like, either a toddler that's, like, shot their mom or, like, there was the dad just last week in, um, I don't remember what state, some, like, real America state who shot his own son at the gun range, you know, and they're like, it's an accident, but guns are fine. Yeah, toddlers have shot 23 people this year. Yeah, no, toddlers yeah. are dangerous out there. Uh, so, you know, like, it's, it's just one of those things where it's always somebody else who is dangerous. It's not, you know, they're like, we have proper training, we have... We have common sense on our side. The other part of this, too, I think that, like, like what makes me really uneasy when I hear a lot of our politicians talk about gun control is that none of them are really telling the, like, hard truth that for the United States to get down to, like, sensible levels of, you know, like, violence, which, you know, like, <laughs> the standards here are, like, usually European or Australian, it means that we're going to have to take, like, everybody's guns away. <laughs> We're going to have to take away, like, significant number of guns from, like, significant number of gun owners. Yeah. And the Second Amendment nut jobs here are not going to make that possible. Well, it's interesting because in in the same way that I feel like people who actually watch professional football are really good advocates for better regulations of professional football, I ask these women who are gun owners, like, how would you advocate for regulation? Because to every single one of them were, like... The NRA doesn't speak for me. I'm not an NRA supporter. I don't believe in unfettered access to guns. So I was like, okay, so like, what what would you do? I won't use an AR-15 because that's way too much gun for me. But I don't see any reason to take that off the market just because because it's been completely misused. Like, there's just there's just absolutely no reason. If you want to add it to your collection or whatever, like I, I know people that do that. I think that there's probably a couple in our safe. Um, but you shouldn't just be able to create the ultimate killing machine and hand them out. Um, AR-15s terrify me. I have not shot one. I've been around when they're shot. It just doesn't seem necessary. Well, I definitely 100% feel that there should not be automatic weapons on the market. That's fucking ridiculous. Background checks on every single firearm purchase. There are common sense regulations that need to be in place. I don't want the wrong people having access to firearms. Sometimes I think if we could magically just get rid of all the guns, I'd give up my gun rights happily. I would happily not want to own guns if we could make sure there were, if there were magically no guns. But it's just, you're not going to, Joe Blow in like deep, deep Wyoming, he's not going to give up his gun collection. It's not going to happen. Yeah, you know, and what we what we should do is have like a ridiculous like national gun buyback program like they did in Australia. In Australia in like 1996 and 1997, 
they just like kind of got fed up with their own like gun violence problem. And the government was like, fine, we're like collecting everybody's guns. And they got something like in the order of magnitude of like 650,000 like guns that people just <laughs> gave back. And guess what? Now they're like a civilized society where uh, <laughs> they've crawled their way back to civilization. <laughs> Good job, Australia. <laughs> I know, you know, where it's, it's just not at the epidemic levels that we have here. And I feel that like people just are not taking like gun owners are not taking personal responsibility in the broad sense that like they're all part. I'm like, I don't care why you own a weapon. You're part of the problem if you do yeah and like I, you can be you can be a sensible like brooklyn living like midwest you know like diva who is really nostalgic about the like guns of your youth but it's still you're part of the problem yeah well it's interesting because i uh, i don't know on one hand i just feel we're so far from a reality where we could implement something like that policy that buyback policy in australia but, but why that's crazy it's like if they can do it in australia why can't we do it here i mean i, I why do we have donald trump as a major party candidate like for president like i don't there's okay. a lot of whys about america they've had donald trump's in australia please have they really uh, like co- oh come God. on their now poli- and their politics right now are probably as crazy as ours they have like an insane scandal <laughs> okay we're not even going down that I'm, I'm like holding like, my head Australia's in my hands <laughs> no please i guess what They're i'm also trying insane people i guess what i'm trying to say is whether or not it is like factually accurate i'm talking about feelings now my feeling is like that feels like so much of a stretch when we can't even get congress to pay attention to this like what i think is actually like kind of like a weirdly right-wing approach of like taking away guns from people on a no-fly list you know what i mean like it's like if we can't even get that it's like how can we get a national no, gun I know, right but that but that's why for me and i think that like we're saying the same thing we're just like <laughs> outraged about like different ways you know, different ways of it you know like same opinion different outrage the new yeah, subtitle same, of the same opinion, different outrage. i just like i you know like i'm sorry to be this person it's just not a thing that i can be open-minded about what i'm saying is that like i don't think that there's such a thing as like a sensible person who owns weapons um, it is interesting where I think that this mentality, so it, it's it's worth noting in case it wasn't apparent that the listeners we spoke with who own guns for personal safety or like for sport are all white women. Um, and oh yeah, that was like the next thing I was going to ask you. It's like all of those women that we just heard from are all white, correct? Totally. And I think that uh, what I was going to say about this is that there's a thread I think that goes from this, I need to protect myself from like the bad things in the world, like, I mean, as like, in this case, a white woman that feeds directly into and like heightens other types of gun violence. Absolutely. You know, and I think that also just like looking at the way that you feel about like, personal safety and guns through the lens of like race and gender is, (laughs) it's, it's, it's honestly like very critical like going back to this feeling of like I just do not feel safe around them and that has everything to do with being a black woman you know I was like maybe if I was like a white lady from like a real America state I would feel differently about it but as far as I'm concerned it like does not make it does not put me at ease you know I have no doubt that if we put out a call for black women who are gun owners for personal safety we could find someone just like I'm a white lady from a quote real America state who thinks that they're like super scary and doesn't want anywhere near one but I think that without trying too hard to like figure out statistically how it breaks down I do think that like the idea of like needing a gun for your personal protection is is like kind of a white lady thing (laughs) that seems accurate to me but I think that there's also something about like just looking at people who always hide under the cover of the second amendment you know and just thinking about like if you're a black person as we have seen recently with the shooting of Philando Castile second amendment kind of doesn't apply to you. He's a man who was shot, who had a permit to carry. According to his partner who was in the car with him, he announced himself to the police officer and still somehow ended up dead. And, you know, to nobody's surprise, the NRA didn't come out supporting him, even though he is legally licensed to carry a firearm. It's just part of the course for how African-Americans in this country are treated when it comes to Second Amendment rights. Or like lots of amendments, let's be real. Yeah, I mean, like all of them. But the gun one is like especially like really interesting, right? Because... Well, the history. (laughs) Yeah, the history of it, one, is like 100% racist. 
where every time that we've had like any kind of like curtailing of the Second Amendment, it's literally white people reacting to black people having guns. Yeah, I mean, and we can link. There's a there's a great overview of the racist history of gun control on the MTV website that we can link to if you want to read the full the full history. But definitely just this idea of like, oh, we super fucked up and enslaved a bunch of people and now they can't ever have guns. Like being the prevailing white mentality is like <laughs> is the story of the Second Amendment. No, totally. And then and then I think about things like open carry, right, which I went to the University of Texas at Austin. Open carry is supposed to start at on the UT campus next month. And I cannot tell you how outraged I am as an alumni. Like literally, I like I can't tell you how many letters I've written. Like <laughs> just I'm like every every time they like solicit feedback from people in the campus community, I'm there and I can't believe that. Like, like I have month, feedback. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I actually have a lot of feedback and I will not giving be giving you a penny of my money or like stepping foot on this campus that I have loved so much because of how like shameful this is. Open carry is the thing that just, that's, like, to me, again, like, the it's, like, where my outrage, like, goes to die, <laughs> where I just don't understand, you know? And when you think about this Dallas police ambush that also just happened recently, the Dallas police, like, basically <laughs> tweeted out the photo of a man, like, saying that he was a suspect in the shooting when it turned out that he was not. And he was a uh, black man that was wearing a camo shirt and uh, carrying a long rifle, at this peaceful protest. He is well within his rights to carry a long gun at a rally or anywhere in Dallas, apparently. But this created a lot of like very significant confusion because he was there, and it just goes to prove that like open carry is a ginormous <laughs> failure. It's like yeah. why like why would you do that? First of all, like that guy looks like a fucking doofus and I don't trust him to protect me for anything. I'm like, I don't need your protection, sir. So <laughs> I don't need you to like have a gun here. And two, it was like, well, this is like the actual nightmare scenario, right? It's like there are all these people with guns. There is a sniper somewhere. What are we supposed to do? And the quotes, oh my God, the next day, the next day article quoting a lot of the police who are on the scene, they're like, yeah, it was really hard to figure out, like, you know, when everyone's got a gun, it was really difficult. And it's like, doy, did anyone think of this when, you know, when you were making this illegal, like, thing to do in your state that, like, maybe it might uh, pose a problem in a violent situation. Maybe we don't want violent, like, situations at all. And maybe leaving your guns at home is a good idea. Yeah, all, yeah, it's just it's just so shocking when I see all these pictures, you know, in the news of like people who are just like carrying rifles around like a Walmart or whatever because they're like it's my right to. And <laughs> I you know like it just it's just not okay and and honestly that creates confusion and it's it's just I don't know. It just again like seems very nonsensical. So yeah, so when you when you realize um, like things like the Second Amendment does not apply to everyone, and you take a step back and you see how mass shootings like Orlando and the horrific level of violence in certain communities, like you know certain parts of Chicago right now, which are seeing soaring rates of gun violence, plus gun violence perpetrated by police in a more like sanctioned environment. I mean, I can definitely recognize all that stuff as gun violence in kind of a broad sense, but it's kind of surprisingly disconnected, like when you read about it or when we talk about it. I don't know if you feel that way, too, that it's like that there's not a lot of conversation that connects those things. No, absolutely. I think that um, I am really curious to hear what this next guest says about that, just because it's one, it's like 
our core area of expertise, but also I really think that it's lost in the high-level conversation that a lot of people have in just the, the disparate ways that all of all of this is connected. So my name is Jamira Burley, and I am the manager of gun violence and criminal justice reform at Amnesty International. Um, my job is to work in collaborations with our, mem- our more than 250,000 members in the United States and our 7 million members worldwide to elevate the issues that are impacting individuals um, domestically here in the United States and to kind of work with the U.S. to live up to its expectations to protect the citizens against a huge amount of human rights violations, including gun violence. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you came to work on this issue or wanted to work on this issue. I mean, because I assume you've been doing this work long before guns were at the center of the national conversation the way they are right now. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I've been doing this work for the last 15 years. I got engaged from a very personal perspective. I'm born and raised in Philadelphia and what many people would consider very violent um, and drug-impacted community. And in 2005, my 20-year-old brother, Andre, was shot and killed in Philadelphia. He was 20 years old. He was killed a month before his 21st birthday. And I think for me, that, that experience in that firsthand, I think as a, as a person growing up in Philadelphia, I saw, I mean, I've heard about people dying due to gun violence. I saw it on the news. It became like a regular part of life. But I think until it happened to me personally, I never really understood the impact This happened when I was 15 years old, and I was encouraged by the mentors and the adults in my life to actually figure out a way in which I could have an impact. And so I created an anti-violence program in my high school, Overbrook High School in West Philly, um, that trained high school students how to be peer mediators and violence interrupters. Um, And so we trained football players, basketball players, any type of student who had influence over other students to interrupt violent incidents in in their environment and prevent violence from happening on school grounds and in their communities. We decreased violence by more than 30% at Overbrook. And then I was given a grant by the governor to implement that same program in the top 10 personally dangerous high schools across Philadelphia. Wow. Part of why we wanted to do this episode is we were kind of noticing like Congress isn't moving super fast on a lot of these issues. And I think we were feeling a little bit like, where is the momentum to do something about about gun violence? And clearly, like, you have experience translating that feeling into action. <laughs> you, I mean, maybe you could point to a couple of things that you guys are doing or working on at Amnesty, or maybe some things that you are watching just as an advocate who works on this issue in terms of like positive change. Yeah, I think one of the many people who are just entering the work of gun violence space, they what you hear in the media is a lot of the times is Congress isn't moving, nothing is happening. And I think that's actually not true. They're happening in small pockets in communities around the country, but they're not happening at a large, a large enough scale to really impact the overall numbers of 30,000 people dying to gun violence. And so what we're trying to do here at Amnesty is to really bring in the human rights framing. So recognizing that there are international laws in which The U.S. has not done its due diligence to actually prevent its citizens from being killed at alarming numbers due to gun violence. The U.S., because of our lax gun laws here in the States, we actually impact gun violence around the world. 75% of the guns that are actually trafficked in Mexico, for example, originates from the U.S., so when you think about like how we set the stage for the for a lot of times the rest of the world, it starts here at home. Um, and I think if we're really going to solve the issues of gun violence, we have to recognize that what happened at Sandy Hook and what happens every day in Chicago are two are similar, meaning that they are used by um, instru- instruments are at the center. Instruments like guns are at the center of tragedy. But they're different in the sense that what drives those violent incidents are very different. So we know that a lot of times in in white suburban communities, it's suicide and it's um, mass shootings. And so a lot of that has to do with mental health and individuals getting access to guns. When you look at urban communities, you're looking at illegal trafficking of guns. And you're also looking at the social and economic implications of a community that's constantly been bombarded with a a host of different um, human rights violations like lack of education, lack of jobs and opportunity. And so while they're similar in many areas, the solutions for them largely are very different. I mean, I'm curious what you think about when all of these different types of gun violence get 
lumped together in a similar narrative or when I'm, you know, often the circumstances of one type of gun violence are used as like supporting evidence or an example for a law that's maybe designed to curb a totally different type of gun violence. And I know we've been struggling with how, like, if this is an episode of our podcast about gun violence, we don't want to neglect the fact that death rates from gun violence in like Chicago right now are at epidemic levels. At the same time, a lot of the experts we're talking to seem to shift the conversation back to this, like, you know, the mental health angle or like the mass shooting angle that you were talking about before. And so maybe for people who are engaged in this issue and care about both of those things, how would you advise actually trying to take them separately? Or what kind of questions can we ask of lawmakers to try to separate the issues? So I would say that they're separate and and they're not separate. So mental health, a lot of times are all automatically assumed for incidents happening in suburban communities, like with mass shootings. But a lot of times when you think about mental health in urban communities, it's not the same. So you're looking at, again, you're looking at individuals who've constantly been around in communities of color where they are surrounded by violence and drugs. Um, You have communities who a lot of times the perpetrators of gun violence are more than likely to be victims and vice versa. So mental health does play a role in both of those communities. But what I say to people who want to get engaged is that the way to really identify what are the solutions or how do we shift the narrative on both solutions for our suburban and urban violence is really talk to impacted communities and talk to the people at the heart who are actually creating solutions. Um, Because what might work in Chicago may not very well work in Philadelphia. But what we do know is that one of the things that could happen is limiting individuals' access to illegal guns and also legal guns. Because we know that sometimes people get legal access to guns who shouldn't have them, whether that's mental health or whether that's because they have a domestic dispute against them. And so there are a host of different reasons why people shouldn't legally have access and also the illegal trafficking of guns, specifically in urban communities. One of my struggles I find is that a lot of times when it's so easy on the national stage for us to talk about Sandy Hook, because those victims were children and they were young and um, who, who wouldn't be saddened by those incidents. But when it's hard for many times for people to understand the implications of gun violence in Chicago, when you think about a five-year-old who was sitting on her porch and got shot or a drug dealer who got shot on the corner, like all of those lives matter. And so until we have a conversation about what makes our community safe for all of its people, I I think we're going to continue to be impacted by the same issue. Because what we'll find is that if you limit like assault weapons in suburban communities, Violence is still going to continue in, in, um, in, in Chicago. And also, violence will more than likely still continue for a large extent um, in white males who are more than likely to use guns for suicide. It's interesting. I did an interview with a different um, gun violence sort of spokesperson expert type with a national organization. And I noticed that in her talking points, she kept saying, we're just trying to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. Or like the talking point was kind of like, we don't want to restrict access to all guns, but like the bad people shouldn't have them. And and I, I really tried to push her for an answer on how that's possible. I mean, like, how do you tell who is a like, quote unquote, bad person? Or like, how do you, mm-hmm. how do you start legislating that? And so I'm curious about, like you said, like, this is a problem that has to do with both legal and illegal guns. Is there like, a starting point that you advocate for like, okay, if we, if we do this first, this would help a lot of people kind of thing, or I don't know. I'm curious about your reaction to just that distinction. When you hear that, I mean, I've said it to many of the partners that we have, it's that that's hard to really quantify for people who, for many of them, they like guns. And so they, it's hard for them to say, well, how do I know? Am I in a, in, a, in a state, for instance, that is an open carry and I'm a Walmart cashier? How do I differentiate the person who's walking in with a gun if that's a, a good person or a bad person? You know what I mean? Like, that's hard to differentiate. And I don't think we should require the average citizen to do that. Whereas, though, I think, for instance, if we look at cars, one of the things that's required to get a car is you have to go to it through a training. You have to take a test. And I think that something like that for gun owners needs to be implemented where they're not only do they go through a training of actually knowing how to carry, um, store and utilize that gun, but also there should be some a mental health test, I think, included in that process to ensure that they, whoever has access to this gun or is not impacted by mental health, health issues. But also, I think there needs to be an avenue for someone who may previously been flagged to then um, later on be able to apply to get access to a gun. 
what I would say for um, when we think about individuals who have sexual abuse charges against themselves, they they should be limited the access to a gun. Um, and we also think uh, need to think about individuals who have at, who want to purchase a gun and, and evaluating who's in the household that will also have access to that gun and ensuring that they themselves don't have a red, that, that they don't self don't have a history of mental health il- illness or um, through the course of them purchasing that gun. So I think there's a number of avenues that can be done, but there needs to be built in mechanisms um, that is tied into the system of purchasing a gun where we're not just letting willy nilly letting anyone walk into a store and purchase something. If all of our listeners were to um, really pay attention to what you're saying here, what would you what would you ask them to do, both on a personal level as they like educate themselves about this issue, and then maybe on more of a direct action level if it's something that they want to see change? I think three things that I would say. One is ask people what what do they think about like when they visualize their safety in their community visualize what that looks like. And or more than often, um, it does not include a gun. I would also ask them that if you do have a gun in the home, ensuring that it's locked up and away from children and that they don't have access to it. And three, I would say that it's important for us all to look at both suburban violence with sympathy and both urban violence with sympathy and think about ways in which we can all collaborate around both issues. Because I think a lot of times people get in this, this work and they can easily connect to Sandy Hook or they can easily connect to, to Chicago. And that's how a lot of times politicians divide us is that they try to develop a solution that's only going to impact one, one of those communities. And a lot of times minorities are left out of the conversation. So I think we have to think more cohesively how we can collaborate in a way that um, can move us all forward and make us all safe um, in our communities. Yeah. And do you think that a solution like, for example, instituting something that's more like a driver's license to get a gun does have a positive effect on a variety of types of communities? Oh, yes. I mean, it's because one, it will deter people who know that they shouldn't have access to a gun from even going to purchase one, particularly for parents who think that having a gun in the home makes them safer. It will enable them the skills that they need in, to, in order to make having that gun safe for their children. Like if you look at a lot of incidents of toddlers shooting each other. And so I think it will eliminate a lot of people from getting access to the gun. It won't prevent all gun violence, but what it do, it, it will shave off, I think, a large population of accidental shootings and eliminate or try to eliminate a lot of the mental health um, individuals from getting access to guns. Yeah. One last question. I know we've talked about different types of communities here, but like we're also really trying to connect the piece here about gun violence as perpetrated by police or as pe- by people who are seen as good people. Yeah, exactly. Like exactly the opposite of what I was saying before. And like, you know, I I feel like on an intuitive gut level that it is it is the same issue. It's all, it's all related, but it again is sort of like another slant or like a different, at least it's portrayed in the media as a very different type of gun violence. And I'm curious if um, how you at Amnesty or maybe you personally connect that back. Yeah. So I also oversee the deadly force work at Amnesty, which is police use of excessive force. And I can tell you wholeheartedly that they are interconnected both in urban and suburban communities, because I think police lay the foundation for why many people in suburban communities feel like having a gun actually makes them safe, when in all reality, it doesn't. In urban communities, more specifically, there's a lot of intersections between both the gun violence and criminal justice and police violence in urban communities. Um, You have to think about, for many people, a lot of times the visibility of police officers actually creates a more hostile environment. And also, a lot of times people who funnel through the criminal justice system or their first contact are with police who use excessive force in either their arrests or they use different internal policies that funnel people through the criminal justice system, which when they are released, their only, their only outlet or their only ability to find income is illegal means. And many of them feel the need to then carry a gun to protect that illegal means of income. So it's a, there are a lot of intersections. They, there are some gaps, I think, where each of these issues on gun violence can stand alone. Um, but there's no way you can look at urban violence without looking at police accountability or police excessive use of force with guns as one of the triggers and or reactionary things that um, that happen due to the over over um, amount of gun violence in urban communities. Before I hang up, is there anything that you're particularly focused on lately or if there is there anything you you would definitely want to raise with with our listeners that I didn't ask about? 
I think the only thing that, um, that I would raise with your listeners is recognizing that there's no way we can elect any candidate that doesn't see gun violence as a major issue in t- 2016. And so I think we need to push politicians of all, of all brackets to um, have serious and authentic conversations about how we tackle gun violence in our communities. Because if this was any other issue where 30,000 people are dying, every organization and every um, think tank would be studying this and would be calling this what it is, which is an epidemic. So I think we have to push our politicians to have serious conversations and think more critically about how we can prevent innocent people from dying. And when I say innocent, I I assume I, I don't believe gun violence is or death is a sentence that anyone should take regardless of their crime. So I think we really need to have a serious conversations about why guns actually don't make us safe, but actually um, are more than likely to hurt us long term. Thinking that you're not going to be affected by this kind of of violence is, it's really interesting because I think that for a lot of us, and particularly for like Black people in this country, is that we are so aware that we could be affected by it, right? A myriad shapes and form. It's like there's, every day I just wake up and I'm like, wow, another way I didn't know I could die. And most of those ways, like, all involve guns, and that's something that is, like, highly depressing. And sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but that's, like, I think that actually really just clarified something for me. It's like, you know, when the stories that we hear about we have to end gun violence now come directly after mass shootings that feel like it's more probable that you know you could get caught up in if you're white right like that Mm -hmm. there's a reason why those things happen right like it's it's definitely those are the incidents that make white people feel under threat like not the rest of it exactly yeah um wow (laughs) another way uh the race of lens separates us (laughs) I mean, <laughs> the lens of race, sorry. Um, but in it, like, I, you know, like in a very, just like very stark and, and shocking, right? No, but I, I think that you're absolutely, I think that point that you made is like absolutely right. Well, and I think it's something that I, it's it's hard to keep in mind as, you know, even just reading the news as like a critical person being like, huh, why, why is this, these two paragraphs about a mass shooting at a suburban movie theater being immediately followed by news about gun control and like what we can do about the issue whereas articles about violence in you know Chicago or like police violence or like violence against like a black teenager is not immediately followed with and here's how <laughs> here's what like is happening legislatively or not happening about gun violence like i think that's a huge like tell yeah, you know, um, one, I was telling you earlier that, like, for me, one particular incident of this that made this so crystal clear, especially in just the way that I relate to it, was the death of Jordan Davis in Jacksonville, Florida, where Jordan Davis was this young man, I'm pretty sure about my brother's age, um, and it's probably why I feel so, like, <laughs> so attached to the story. Um, that was, he was just outside a gas station in, in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, he was apparently playing loud music in his car with like three of his friends and, uh, this, some like middle-aged white guy, um, Michael Dunn. I, it's so crazy how we remember these people's names also. Like I can't even, (laughs) it's like, you can tell me the name of like prominent white people that have shot black people recently and I can tell you exactly what case it is. And then like teens whose names I shouldn't know except for tragedy. But so anyway, this man, Michael Davis shoots him. So this is all an escalation from like your music is too loud to now somebody is dead. (laughs) And uh, Michael Dunn like used the defense that he was, essentially like acting in self-defense under Florida's like stand your ground law, which is so awful. Even though Jordan Davis was like still in the car, right? Yeah. And is a teenager. And all Michael Dunn has to say is that like, he believed that like Jordan Davis had a weapon. Uh, No weapon was found PS, but the, um, this belief that like this teenager, because he was listening to loud music, had a weapon and killed him is like enough to get Michael Dunn off. But so Anyway, a couple of years ago, I was at Sundance and um, I was at this like really fancy party where (laughs) I was so aware that I was like one of the only black people there because of how ridiculously fancy it was. 
And uh, this man like found me in the crowd and was just like stopped me. And I, I'm like such a social anxiety person. And I was like, oh, what is this going to be about? And uh, he put this flyer in my hand and was having a, like a really emotional moment and was like, you should watch this documentary about my son. And I didn't like look at the flyer until the next day. And then it turned out that it was Jordan Davis's dad. And uh, I watched a documentary that morning, and I don't know, that like that documentary about this particular case is so, and just the whole case in general, is just so, it's so heartbreaking. Because you can watch it and think about, like, you know, it's like, how do white people get away with, like, shooting black men? But also, so much of it is about race, and so much of it is about guns and your relationship to them and your reaction to them. Right, and how they and enable someone who feels um, feels threatened for, like, for something that is based in, essentially, racism to act on that. Plus, P.S., yeah, no. the guy who shot him had, a, like, a, was totally permitted and, like, within the bounds of the law, like, to carry a gun. Like, you know, it's, no, it's definitely, exactly. yeah, exactly what we were talking about. And all he had to do was, like, think that this, like, black, normal middle-class teen was a thug, and that's how he got away with it, right? And so it's called, like, Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets, and you should watch it if you haven't seen it. But it's also been really interesting to watch Jordan Davis's parents, like, become these, like, spokespeople, essentially, and just, you know, fighting for justice for their son. I remember an interview that Lucia McBath, um, his mother, did with ta Coates, where Ta-Nehisi Coates, like, took his son, and at the end, she, like, has this exhortation for him. Like, I'll link to it in the document, but <laughs> that was definitely one of those, like, internet reading made me cry days. Um, so, yeah, you know, and it, it's so unfair that this is what his parents have to do now, but they, you know, they're, like, essentially, like, fighting for black lives everywhere. Yeah, so we actually talked to Lucia McBath for this episode. She's been working with Every Town for Gun Safety and Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, doing outreach to faith-based communities, but also general advocacy and legislative work on this issue. I am Lucy McBath. I'm the mother of Jordan Davis. I am a national spokesperson for Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America and faith and community outreach leader for Every Town for Gun Safety. Maybe you can start by talking about how you got involved in this issue. I got involved in gun violence prevention, which I absolutely had no clue about the gun culture, the gun epidemic, gun violence epidemic. I didn't really have that much of an idea about what was really going on in the country until uh, until Trayvon Martin was murdered. And then, you know, Jordan was murdered very shortly thereafter, seven months after. And so I just, out of my angst and my anger, I wanted to know, you know, why the the faith community was not standing up and speaking out about morally and ethically what was happening in the country. And I wanted to understand a little bit more about the gun culture and the gun laws and how under our existing gun laws, you know, people were dying in the streets disproportionately, you know, young males of color. I wanted to address the nation, not just the black community, because I wanted the nation as a whole to understand that this is their problem, too. So I liken uh, my work to being a bridge builder. I, uh, you know, talk to all audiences around the country. I talk with our legislators. I talk with our civic leaders, academia, the faith community, and I engage them uh, into gun violence prevention work. And so how do you, I mean... Obviously, a lot of people who are going to listen to this have not had a personal experience with gun violence that is so devastating or have not have not really had it affect someone in their family. How do you talk to people kind of like the folks you were describing who don't seem to think they have a personal stake in this issue? And how do you how do you convince them that this is really all of our problem? Well, I. I basically say that, you know, if you think that you are immune to gun violence, then you're sadly mistaken because I, for one, thought that we were, would never be affected by it. We weren't living in a community that was ensconced by gun violence. You know, we never had guns around the house. You know, Jordan was afraid of guns. We, you know, Jordan was in an environment, very safe environment. And I thought I'd done all the right things. I thought that, you know, I had homeschooled him and, you know, laid, laid a really good grounding and faith for him. And, 
you know, we were, you know, believers and just doing so-called all the right things. And you think because you believe that you're doing all the right things that you are not likened to be uh, a subject of gun violence. But that is absolutely not true because our gun culture has become so expansive. Our gun laws have become so loose and ambiguous that people are using their guns any way that they want to. People are deciding for themselves to take matters into their own hands. They're shooting first, asking questions later. People are using their guns as a means to silence people that don't look, think, or act like them. You know, people are acting out their implicit biases and racism through gun violence, and that if you think that you are immune to it, no one is. You know, gun violence has infiltrated the church. Gun violence has infiltrated the LGBTQ community. Gun violence has infiltrated every facet of society. And so we are all stakeholders in this because people are innocently dying in the street every single day. We've got 91 people in this country that are dying every single day and hundreds more are injured by gun violence and no one is safe. We're supposed to be one nation under God. Everyone is responsible for trying to create a safer environment for all of us to live in and that you cannot turn a blind eye to the communities that are disproportionately affected by the gun violence because as I tell people all the time, as you've seen, the so-called gun epidemic in, you know, the urban community is no longer just the urban community's problem. If we do not care about communities outside of our own, if we do not care about people and individuals outside of our own reality and our own communities, then we are taking part in really the demise morally and ethically and violently of our own people and our nation. And that I say all the time is that maybe you can't do what I do. I'm not asking you to, but I'm asking you to use your voice and to stand up and let your legislators and your community leaders know that they are accountable to you, your safety. You can do that very easily, make your voice known. Making a phone call to your legislator, sending a letter to your legislator, sending a Facebook post or a tweet, or better yet, the best thing to do is to march yourselves up there to their offices, go to the Capitol, and demand that they pay heed to our safety. I, I talk to these legislators all the time, and I, I'm sitting there and I'm imploring with them as a, as a victim of gun violence, of having lost my own son to senseless gun violence. And they say to me all the time, okay, well, if this is true, that most of the people, that 90% of the people in this country believe as you do, and that 90% of gun owners believe as you believe, then where are they? And what can I say when I'm sitting there by myself and I don't have anybody there that, 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 you know, that is supporting what I'm, I'm, what I'm telling the legislators, what I'm telling the civic leaders. What they say to me is that we hear all the time from the NRA gun lobby. They're pounding down our doors. The minute any kind of legislation comes forth, they're sending them petitions. They're sending in hundreds of thousands of phone calls. Where are the people that believe like you? Yes, it's important to have prayer vigils. Yes, it's important to rally in the streets, but if you do not go beyond that, nothing changes. And we have to vote at our state and local elections. That's where all the gun laws are created and passed through the state legislatures. And that's where the power is. Federal law does not mirror state and local law. You know, you could perish too. I tell people that all the time. You never know when someone within your community or your family is going to be affected by gun violence. And then you're going to be kicking yourself saying, why didn't I do something? Why did I only pray? Why did I just say, Jordan, we have to pray for those families? Why did I not stand up and do more? I know for me, sometimes I, um, I'm a little bit daunted by the magnitude. You know, I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of advocates, you know, a lot of the conversation is about keeping guns out of certain hands or passing certain restrictions. And when I think about just like how many guns are out there in America and how, you know, even with some change to our law, how easy it is to get them, 
I, I sort of, I get despairing really fast, personally. <laughs> what do you do about that feeling? Well, you know, you, you can't be beside yourself with the numbers of guns that are on the streets because we, we know they're there. Channel that energy, those feelings that you have, and channel them into doing something that is concrete. We know the number one way to begin reducing a lot of these unnecessary and senseless uh, murders across the country is, you know, we've got to enact some sensible, common-sense background check legislation. That's the number one way. It's not going to take all the guns off the street. It's not going to solve every problem. But we know that there's the number one way to be able to catch those individuals in the country, such as domestic abusers, you know, convicted felons, and, you know, people that are mentally ill, keeping them, keeping guns out of their hands. I agree with you. There are so many different forms and parts to this that it's going to take years, years to get a grip and get control over the expanse of gun culture. But think about it. It's taken 25 to 30 years for it to even get to this point where the NRA gun lobby, you know, quietly passing these, you know, very loose and watered down gun laws on our legislative floors around the country. So it's going to take a long time to, to chisel away at each and every part and piece of it. But you pick your battles and find the easiest, most effective way to begin the process, and that's background check legislation. Yeah, and so for, for our listeners who maybe don't know where their state stands on background checks or other gun control measures, is there an easy place for them to find that out, or what, do you, what would you recommend they do? Absolutely. Go to everytown.org. You can find out information about various states, uh, what states have particular gun laws, and you can even go on the website for the NRA gun lobby, and they will give you report cards for the various legislators around the country based upon the way that they vote on various gun measures and initiatives. Um, if you have a legislator on the NRA gun uh, lobby uh, site that receives an A or a B, then those people are definitely not for stricter gun laws. If you have individuals that um, are receiving Ds and Fs, then those are the, in, the individuals and the legislators that are not being beholden to the NRA gun lobby because the information is the way that you can really be engaged and move forward and, and have what you need. Um, that is, so to speak, your ammunition. That is your ammunition to really be involved and engaged and making sure that, you know, you, you help to change the gun culture within your community. Um, and I always tell people that you have the power and the knowledge. You just got to know where to find it. Oh, thank you so much, Lucy. This has been great. You're welcome. I always want to tell people again and again, you know, we are the catalyst for change. We have to do it ourselves. Absolutely. So we will have so many links to all of these things um, on callyourgirlfriend.com, a reading list um, that really helped us put together this episode, some of the statistics, and then also links about how to get involved with Everytown for Gun Safety and Amnesty International's gun violence and criminal justice work. Mega thanks to everyone who let us interview them for this episode. Yeah, this is um, this was a lot, and we didn't even touch on police violence, which uh, maybe we'll do an episode on that soon. <laughs> because I mean, do you want it? <laughs> uh, no, you know, like in the sense that, like, this is my problem with this gun issue is that it's so nuanced and it's so layered, and it touches so many other just aspects of our policy and our lives, and um, and you know, and we're gonna have to talk about it a lot more. Right, and how it is all connected. I mean, Jamira made the point that police lay the foundation for suburban communities thinking that they need guns, um, which, like, I don't know. I think that th- there are there are a lot of unexplored connections here. Um, thanks for getting heavy with us on Call Your Girlfriend this week. Oh, yeah. Um, you can find us many places on the internet on our website at callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download our show anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts or on iTunes, where we would love it if you left us a review. 
you can tweet at us at callyrgf <laughs> or email us callyrgf at gmail you can also find us on facebook you can look that up yourself or on instagram at callyrgf we're posting a lot of really fun instagrams lately so <laughs> you should find us there you can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. If you haven't bought your tickets to our LA show, what are you, doing you are a fool. <laughs> what are you even doing? It is, it's selling out really fast, and I don't want to get last-minute emails. Like, every one of our shows, people go, I don't know who's going to sell out, and I didn't buy my ticket. Guess what? Now you know. You find out who your real uh, friends are. They buy early. <laughs> exactly. Come join us August 18th at the theater at the Ace Hotel. It's a beautiful venue. We're going to have so many fun guests that we'll be announcing soon. And you're going to hate yourself for not buying your ticket when we tell you who will be there. I won't even give spoilers. It's true. And you can find a link to buy tickets at um, callyourgirlfriend.com or like pretty much everywhere on our social media. Be there or be a fool forever. Oh, and P.S. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. <laughs> Gina, and thank you to our friends at Argo Studio for having us today. Yes. Oh yeah, see you on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> see you. See you on the internet.